Hey there, it's Jason, one of the members of the ENT in a Nutshell team. Thanks for listening to our program. If you enjoy it, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast, and don't hesitate to contact us through headmirror.com with any questions or suggestions. Thanks, and now on to the episode. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ronit Malka, and today I'm joined by Dr. Aurora Vincent to talk about superficial soft tissue defects and repair, particularly grafts, local flaps, and scar revision. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Vincent. Thanks so much for having me. Starting with presentation, what are we typically defining as a superficial defect that would require a graft or a local flap as opposed to a regional or free flap? Every wound has the potential to be treated with a graft or local flap. Often these wounds are smaller than those ultimately treated with a regional or free flap, but that's not always the case. In general, wounds that are missing multiple tissue types, multiple tissue layers, or that do not have a well-vascularized tissue bed will be best served with a regional or free flap reconstruction. Local flaps, which essentially boil down to rearrangement of adjacent tissue in various ways, are limited in breadth and thickness by their vascular supply and reach of the subdermal plexus. Local flaps are also dependent on the pliability of the tissue near a wound. Large defects of the neck, for example, can often be closed with a local flap as the rest of the neck skin is stretchy and relatively mobile, but similarly sized defects of the scalp uh, can be much more difficult to close with local tissue rearrangement as the scalp just doesn't stretch and move like the neck does. Local flaps are also limited by surrounding structures. By definition, a local flap closure borrows from tissue adjacent to the wound, and as such, it can cause stretch and pull on nearby structures. A lower eyelid defect, while it may be relatively small, shouldn't be addressed with local tissue rearrangement alone if that rearrangement has the potential to cause ectropion, lid malposition, or other functional and aesthetic deformities. Similarly, a local closure of a small defect on the nose that would cause alar notching is less ideal than a more complicated reconstruction up front. Now, skin grafts, on the other hand, can cover practically any size of wound, but they have to have a healthy, well-vascularized tissue bed to support them, and they won't restore any bulk that's missing. Full-thickness skin grafts are limited by their donor sites. You have to be able to close the site after harvest, Split-thickness skin grafts, by contrast, are really only limited by the available skin on a person's body. Even if someone has had a split-thickness skin graft taken from his thigh before, after it heals, another graft can be harvested from that same place, and the harvest site heals on its own. This segues into the reconstructive ladder. Could we briefly review all our reconstructive options and when you may want to use them? Definitely. Now, the reconstructive ladder is a useful tool for helping you think through reconstructive options, but don't take the latter part of it too literally. That is, don't limit yourself to thinking of it as a progression of reconstructive options, but rather allow yourself to jump from rung to rung to whatever reconstruction best fits a situation. That said, it does provide a framework for formulating a reconstructive plan. So let's go through the classic reconstructive ladder. First, healing by primary and secondary intention are the simplest reconstructive methods. A wound heals by secondary intention on its own without any surgical intervention, but often this is not functionally or aesthetically ideal, 
as healing by secondary intention can take a long time and leave obvious scars and defects that may need to be addressed later. In the case of small wounds on concave surfaces, healing by secondary intention could be very useful and look pretty good. So small skin-only wounds inferior to the medial brow, for example, along the lateral nasal bones, in the temple or folds of the ear cartilage, that will heal in an aesthetically pleasing way by secondary intention given appropriate wound care and follow-up. In these cases, local tissue rearrangement is actually more likely to distort nearby facial structures and features when skin grafts are liable to look out of place next to the native skin in the area. Healing by primary intention means that you close the wound by approximating the wound edges with suture, glue, or staples. Delayed primary intention simply means that the closure doesn't happen right away, but rather it occurs a few days or weeks later. Often closure is delayed if there's concern for wound infection or a changing wound appearance, such as from progressive tissue necrosis. In the case of animal bites, for example, some advocate waiting to close the wound as primary closure soon after the injury could trap bacteria beneath the skin and cause an infection. In my own experience, this idea comes from the literature surrounding wounds of the extremities, the digits, the toes. The face, by contrast, is so vascular compared to other parts of the body that it's relatively resistant to infection, and thoroughly cleansing a wound with pressured irrigation, followed by true primary closure, is aesthetically advantageous without incurring an undue risk for infection. Necrotizing fasciitis is one of the few cases in which wounds are actually left open for a few days before delayed closure. For all primary closures, approximation of the skin edges shortens the healing time compared to healing by secondary intention. It requires a smaller wound, however, with skin edges that are mobile enough to allow closure, and it might leave a linear or oddly shaped scar that runs in an obvious location across facial subunits and against the relaxed skin tension lines. As a quick aside, it's important in aesthetic and reconstructive surgery to understand what relaxed skin tension lines are and what their pattern is across the face and neck. In general, relaxed skin tension lines are the pattern of lines denoting the direction of least tension across various facial subunits. They tend to run perpendicular to the direction of muscle contraction, and incisions that are placed parallel to these relaxed skin tension lines tend to heal better because there's less pull across the wound during healing. On the face, uh, these lines travel transversely across the forehead and the cheeks, and then transition to a vertical orientation in the lateral cheek and across the lips and chin. The concept of relaxed contention lines also brings up another important concept in reconstructive surgery, which is that of tension. Tension across a wound closure in general leads to poor healing and a less pleasing aesthetic outcome. Tension on the skin and subcutaneous tissues can sometimes restrict blood flow to the wound and lead to dehiscence. Also, even minor amounts of movement and tension over time can cause scar widening. Now remember, wounds heal and contract up to a year, sometimes longer, after initial closure. And they can be affected by tension, pressure, sun exposure, all for better or worse throughout this time. But getting back to the reconstructive ladder... Some folks will say that grass and tissue expanders come next. Others would say that local flaps come next. It's all semantics. Skin grafts will start there. They come in three varieties. Full thickness, split thickness are the most common. Some would also include composite grafts in this category. 
we'll come back to these more in depth in a short bit. So the next rung up the ladder, tissue expansion, which we'll cover in more depth in a little while. After that, local flaps, as we already mentioned, involve rearrangement of adjacent tissue to close a wound. Now these differ from primary closure in their ability to borrow tissue to help close a large or irregularly shaped wound. Further, local tissue rearrangement allows for reorientation of scars so that a wound, for example, that travels across relaxed skin tension lines could be closed and reoriented such that it travels with those lines. We'll get more in depth with local flaps here shortly. Finally, up the reconstructive ladder, we have regional and free flaps, and newer reconstructive ladders would even add composite heteroplastic graft transfer, such as facial transplant, to the very top. Now, there's too much about regional and free flaps to cover here, but briefly, these methods involve transfer of tissue that has its own named blood supply to close a wound. Recall that local flaps are generally based off a random pattern nutritional supply from the subdermal plexus. Regional and free flaps are angiosome-based by contrast. We have a separate podcast on regional and free tissue transfer for those who are interested. And what are some of the overarching pathophysiologic principles that are guiding reconstruction and treatment of superficial soft tissue defects? To start, there are four phases of wound healing. Hemostasis, inflammation, proliferation, and maturation. The phases of hemostasis and inflammation are occasionally lumped together and generally occur over the first few hours up to four days after wound creation. So right away, after a wound, vessels constrict and the clotting cascade activates, leading to coagulation. The inflammatory phase is so named because of the massive infiltration of neutrophils, macrophages, and fibroblasts into the wound. Externally, this phase is often observed as swelling of the wound and surrounding tissues, a secondary effect of the inflow of needed cells. The proliferative phase begins roughly four days after wound creation and continues for a couple weeks. In this phase, reepithelialization and neovascularization occur. Collagen is deposited initially as type 3, and myofibroblasts cause the wound to start to contract. The last stage, maturation or remodeling, picks up at about the two-week mark and continues for months to even a couple years. In this stage, collagen 3 is converted to collagen 1. Collagen fibers align themselves in an organized and parallel fashion, and gradually the tensile strength of the area is reestablished to almost what it was before the wound was created. Now, in rough terms, wounds restore about 15% of their normal strength by three weeks of healing, 60% at, say, six weeks of healing, and 80% at six months. Now, a scar will never have the same full tensile strength that it originally had. It usually tops out around 80% or so. So next, there are three general phases of skin graft healing and nutrition. So first, skin grafts receive nutrition through plasma imbibition. Next, after a few days, nutrition is via capillary inosculation. Now, inosculation derives from the Latin word for kissing. And in this phase, capillaries of the underlying wound bed are adjacent to and kissing new capillaries in the graft itself. The final phase is neovascularization, in which angiogenesis leads to development and ingrowth of new blood vessels. It's probably also worth mentioning the physiology of a quote-unquote delayed flap here as well. 
if there's concern about flap viability and perfusion, one way you can boost a flap's nutritional robustness is to delay it. What that means is that in an initial surgery, you incise around an intended flap and elevate it away from the underlying tissue, same as you would if you were going to transfer it to fill a wound. However, you don't actually transfer it in this case. Rather, you lay it back down in the same place it originated, sew it back in place, and let it be. Then you come back in a second stage, the delay part, re-raise the flap, and this time actually transfer it and inset it to reconstruct a wound. Theory is that the time between raising the flap and insetting allows the flap tissues to be primed for a more strained blood supply. In the case of larger regional flaps, delaying allows choke vessels between angiosomes to open and improve overall flap vascularity, and perhaps something similar on a smaller level happens with delayed local flaps. Laying the flap back in its original position protects its pedicle or influx of subdermal plexus from kinking, twisting, and other strain that can come with transposition to give it time to adjust to a reduced blood supply. Delaying a flap, in my experience, is not often done. It can be cumbersome for some patients. It extends the reconstructive process and it adds another surgery, but it nonetheless is a useful technique to remember that may come in handy in a select group of folks. Now last, always remember that patients with good nutrition and good habits will heal better than other patients. And that's the case whether you're reconstructing a two millimeter wound or a 20 centimeter wound. Patients who actively smoke, use tobacco and nicotine products are more prone to poor healing. Also, patients with protein and electrolyte deficiencies, collagen vascular diseases, vasculopathies, hypothyroidism, immunodeficiencies are all prone to poor healing. As much as you can, it's important to optimize the modifiable factors before surgical reconstruction. No matter how small, it really can improve the outcome and save a lot of headaches postoperatively. While the underlying diagnosis in most cases is very clear, what are some things you may have on your differential that could lead to defects of this size? Among the most common causes of head and neck defects amenable to local flap closure are trauma and cancer excision. Dog bites, slips and falls, motor vehicle crashes, and other everyday slip-ups can easily cause lacerations and facial wounds, both small and large. Mohs resection of non-melanomatous skin cancers and even wide local excision of melanomas can lead to wounds of varying depth and size, many of which are best treated with local flaps, or at least local flap reconstruction combined with another modality. Now remember, a single type of reconstruction doesn't have to treat the entirety of a wound, and sometimes a combination of techniques may lead to the most functional and aesthetically pleasing outcome. Now, in some cases, patients will come to you with a wound that has already healed, just not in the way that they like or can tolerate. So scar revision, and specifically scar reorientation, is a very useful aspect of local flap reconstruction that can go a long way to improving a patient's appearance and function. Scar reorientation can fix ectropion, caused by scar contraction that pulls down the lower eyelid, for example. So it's not always only about aesthetics. Reorientation is more often used for cosmetic improvement. It can hide otherwise obvious scars and natural facial subunit boundaries and natural wrinkles, utilizing the principles of relaxed skin tension lines that we've already talked about. Besides a typical head and neck exam and photo documentation, 
What are you paying special attention to on history or physical exam in these patients? Is there any role for labs or imaging in these patients preoperatively? Well, first, in the history, it's important to elicit any issues that could cause problems with wound healing, increase the risk for infection, or increase the risk for bleeding. One should always remember to ask about diabetes, hypertension, history of scarring such as keloid or hypertrophic scar formation, thyroid disorders, and so on. Some diseases can be optimized before surgery. Glucose and TSH can be normalized, for example, and this should be done if possible. But don't forget to ask about collagen vascular disorders, hepatorenal disease, and bleeding disorders. Along those lines, don't forget to ask about blood thinning medications as well as steroid use, vitamins and minerals that increase the risk of bleeding, and other meds. Often, we as the surgeons prefer for patients to stop any and all blood thinning medications, and input from a cardiologist can help you determine a patient's true risk with anesthesia and risk of ceasing whatever blood thinners they're taking for a short period of time. In some cases, it may be safest for patients to keep taking their blood thinners, and while this doesn't prevent the possibility of surgical reconstruction, it might alter the plan a little bit. For some patients, you may want to check a TSH, get an echocardiogram, type and screen before surgery, but that's on a case-by-case basis. In general, no specific labs or imaging are routinely necessary for a local flap reconstruction. What you really want to play special attention to is the physical exam, and more specifically, the wound and its surrounding structures. Now, I think it's fairly obvious that you need to know the size of the defect, its depth, what tissues it involves, but you also want to know how much laxity or redundancy there is in the surrounding tissue and in what direction nearby tissues move most easily. It's important to also pay attention to structures that you don't want to distort or stretch. And in this regard, you should remember that scars will heal and contract for several months after reconstruction. Take, for example, a patient with a two centimeter circular wound of the lateral forehead. He may have enough movement of his scalp that you could close this wound primarily. You could even think about orienting the scar transversely so as to disguise it in a wrinkle. However, such a closure is likely to pull inferiorly on the hairline and superiorly on the eyebrow, which might lead to an obvious, awkward, asymmetric, and aesthetically undesirable appearance to the face. The aesthetic ramifications of that reconstruction are fairly apparent immediately and in the operating room, but not all issues are so readily apparent. As scars contract over time, they can slowly tug and distort structures that look fine initially. For example, a poorly placed incision can lead to alar retraction, um, or as we've mentioned above, ectropion, long after the initial reconstruction is performed. Again, there is rarely only one reconstructive plan that will lead to complete wound closure. More often, there are multiple different things you could do. Other features to consider that can help you choose one method over another include hairlines, hair-bearing skin. If you rearrange tissue in a certain way, will it add hair to an undesirable area, such as the medial cheek, or will it remove the ability to grow hair in the beard, for example? Next, think about other qualities of the skin, such as its thickness, its color, and try to find the closest match. Last, always keep in the back of your mind the patient and his or her particular situation. Will he tolerate a multi-stage reconstruction? Will he follow up? 
Does he want the best possible cosmetic reconstruction or does he want something quick and reliable that by surgeon standards may not look as good? As surgeons, we always want to give patients the most beautiful and perfect outcome. We often feel that how a patient looks reflects on us and our skills, but that isn't always what the patient wants. And it's important to step back, shift away from focusing on our perception of what's best and remember what he wants and thinks is best for him. Let's move on to treatment options. In this discussion, we're focusing on skin grafts, tissue expanders, and local flaps. Starting with skin grafts, what are our surgical options and deciding factors for using a particular technique? Full thickness skin grafts include the entire dermis and epidermis, whereas split thickness skin grafts include, shockingly, only partial thickness dermis. They're taken from a donor site completely separate from the wound being constructed and set into the wound bed as a new covering. Skin grafts rely on nutrition initially via imbibition from the underlying wound bed, so the wound has to be fairly vascular and the grafts have to be fairly thin in order to survive. Now, The graft site for a split thickness graft will heal on its own without further intervention and future split thickness grafts can be harvested from that same site. Now, split thickness grafts also tend to heal more reliably than full thickness grafts. However, they can have poor color and texture match and are prone to significant contraction over time. Full thickness grafts, by contrast, typically provide a better color and texture match and they don't contract as much over time. They're more likely to develop sensory innervation, sebaceous function, and even hair growth. Their donor site often requires primary closure or closure with a split thickness skin graft, and they're slightly less reliable than split thickness skin grafts in terms of the percent take in their initial healing. Composite grafts include free transfer of multiple types of tissue, so commonly skin and cartilage. Often they're useful for nasal and auricular reconstruction, but they have to be small to survive, often less than one and a half centimeters squared or nutrition from the wound bed simply isn't sufficient enough to support tissue survival. And for tissue expansion, how do you typically approach these treatment options? Tissue expansion, specifically internal tissue expansion, is when you use an implantable balloon of sorts that you gradually inflate over the course of several weeks, slowly increasing pressure-related stretch on the overlying skin to increase its surface area and allow subsequent implant removal and local tissue rearrangement for closure of a nearby wound. Now, there are a slew of histologic changes induced by tissue expanders. First, while the dermis, subcutaneous tissues, and underlying muscle thin, the overlying epidermis actually thickens, and a fibrous capsule is usually formed, which can contribute to the tensile strength of the final closure. Occasionally, underlying bone can resorb, uh, which you need to watch out for. Tissue expansion often requires two surgeries and multiple in-office visits over the course of several weeks to a few months, so the process can be somewhat tedious and not conducive to many patient lifestyles or treatment tolerance. During the initial surgery, the expander is placed near the area to be reconstructed. Importantly, you should place your incision away from where the implant is so that you can avoid increased tension across a healing wound. Remember, as we mentioned earlier, the incision site will only achieve 15% of its normal tensile strength in the initial weeks of healing. The expander is often filled to about 10% or so of its full volume at the time of placement. 
to ensure that there aren't any wrinkles or pressure points surrounding the implant. And then patients are seen one to two times weekly for small amounts of volume to be added gradually. Now, the end goal is to achieve expansion 10 to 20% more than what the wound requires for reconstruction. There will be some small but immediate wound contraction when you remove the implant, so it helps to have more than enough tissue to close. Now, intraoperatively, in some cases, a quick poor man's tissue expansion can be accomplished by inflating a Foley catheter balloon and leaving it for a few minutes to generate a little bit of extra tissue area for closure, or even using towel clamps to hold the wound edges together temporarily while the skin stretches. Also, there are what are called external tissue expansion devices. Basically, they're skin anchors that traverse an area of a wound and exert tension to gradually pull the skin together. They don't require the frequent visits that internal expanders do to increase tension, but they can also be somewhat cumbersome and only certain patients will tolerate them. Another form of external tissue expansion is, in effect, serial excision. This is commonly used for scar revision or removal of large skin lesions, which, like other forms of tissue expansion, take advantage of the principles of skin creep and stress relaxation. Creep is the process by which skin lengthens or stretches as a result of a constant tension applied to it. The corollary is stress relaxation, in which the tension required to keep skin stretched to a given length gradually decreases over time. Now, the amount of elastin in the skin determines how much the skin can stretch and recoil back to its original shape. Older patients often have less elastin, which makes it easier for the surgeon to close a wound without as much tension. Now for local flaps. This is a pretty broad topic that can be rather overwhelming. In broad strokes, can you break down the main types of local flaps? Certainly. Classically, local flaps are all random flaps, meaning their nutrition is based on the random pattern supply of the subdermal plexus. Now, some folks may classify some smaller axial flaps as local flaps too, just meaning small soft tissue flaps that live off of a named vessel. To me, they've always fallen into a separate category of axial flaps. In the end, how you classify them doesn't matter so much as how you use them. So with that in mind, what are some general principles that lead you to choose a particular type of flap for closing a defect or revising a scar? The first consideration is the wound. Where is it? What's around it? And so on. For facial wounds, remember that you don't always have to reconstruct the initial wound that's in front of you. Some would propose that for wounds that take up more than half of a facial subunit, you could remove the rest of the normal tissue within that subunit and then reconstruct the entire segment. The benefit is that incisions of the reconstruction would then be nicely hidden along natural subunit borders and the entire subunit would then have a uniform appearance after you're all finished. Now this approach isn't the most optimal for everyone, but it's something to keep in mind. Now getting on to flap selection, when local flaps are boiled down to their simplest forms, all of them are really either tissue advancements or tissue transpositions. So first, let's start with the obvious advancement flap in which adjacent tissue is undermined and stretched to close a wound. Now remember, you can undermine as much as you want, but in most areas, undermining more than four centimeters beyond the wound edge won't further decrease tension on the wound closure. However, it may be useful for some aesthetically appealing redraping of the skin as in a facelift, for example. 
Now next, let's say that you undermine tissue on two sides of a wound and you stretch it to meet in the middle. And furthermore, let's say that you made back cuts at both ends of your advancement flaps to let the tissue advance a little more easily and, and close more nicely. Well, that's essentially an O to H flap. It's a bilateral advancement flap. O to H's are particularly useful for forehead wounds. They allow lateral mobilization of tissue without disrupting the brow or hairline position. And you might convert a simple advancement flap to an O to H to avoid skin puckering at the ends of your wound. Or you might use an O to H so that incisions are parallel to the relaxed skin tension lines. Now, say you have a wound and right next to the wound, there's extra tissue that could be mobilized to close the wound. But say to avoid distorting nearby structures, you don't want to just stretch the surrounding tissue to close the wound. Rather, you'd prefer to kind of fill it in. Bear with me here. You can make two incisions extending laterally from the wound that meet at a point, thus making a V to the side of the wound. You could mobilize above and below the V, but leave the skin inside attached to the underlying tissue. After that, you can advance that skin tissue or skin island to fill in the wound that you're reconstructing. And then you can close the sides of the V together primarily. After everything's closed, the final incision will look somewhat like the letter Y, hence a V to Y. Now, this flap is excellent for defects of the nasal ala and some of the sidewall. The incisions of the V can be hidden nicely in the nasolabial fold, and you can advance a good amount of tissue to close the wound without distorting the alar base, the lips, the eye, or the cheek. Now, a V to Y is also useful if you need to lengthen an area, such as a contracted scar or asymmetric peak of a cupid's bow after cleft lip repair. You don't have to have a wound to fill in, but rather you can start just with a V-shaped incision, advance the central tissue forward, and close the V behind it. If there was no wound to fill in, then what you've done is increased the length of the area in the direction of the V, pushed the cupid's peak inferiorly, or lengthened the scar. As a side note, it can be difficult to really wrap your head around the configurations, orientations, transformations of various local flaps simply by reading about them or listening to descriptions for that matter. I find the best way to really understand local tissue rearrangement is to practice, to see it and move it yourself. As a medical student or a junior resident starting out, one easy way to do this is to grab a stack of extra OR towels at the end of a case use them to draw, cut out, and simulate movement of various flaps. It's less messy than using animal tissue or other synthetic models, and it can certainly help one see and thus better understand how to do various flaps. Okay, so having covered advancement flaps, how about rotational flaps? So next to rotational flaps, but again, these are in a way just fancy advancement flaps. So instead of advancing tissue linearly, in rotation flaps, you're advancing it around an arc to fill a space. Now, a classic advancement rotation will have a diameter that's four to five times the diameter of the wound in order to achieve wound closure. Inevitably, a standing cutaneous deformity will form at the pivot point. It can be released by excising a burrow's triangle, but you want to be careful of how and where you excise that tissue as you don't want to narrow or cut off the base of your flap. Now, if you rotate tissue in two directions, say one flap from the anterior left part of a wound and a second from the posterior right part of the wound, and say those two advancement 
rotations meet in the middle to close a wound, well, that's essentially an O to Z. It's two opposing advancement rotation flaps. The advantage is that each rotational flap has a smaller area to close and thus has a smaller overall diameter of rotation that may fit more nicely within natural aesthetic boundaries. When the flaps have their bases both superior to the wound or both inferior to it, then the closure becomes an O to T. Continuing our march along various types of flaps here, could you speak to transposition flaps now? Transposition flaps, Z-plasties, rhombic flaps, bilobe flaps, fundamentally, these are all the same in that they involve transposing tissue elements into a new configuration. Sometimes it's to close a wound, sometimes it's to realign a scar, sometimes it's to lengthen tissue. Sometimes it's to disguise a scar, break up a long, noticeable line into multiple smaller, less obvious ones. Whatever the reason or the overall name that you give to the configuration, it's still just shifting tissue over other tissue. So for example, in a classic rhombic flap, you take a wound, you expand it either actually or just conceptually into the shape of a rhombus with 60 and 120 degree angles. Next, you draw an adjacent rhombus, starting with a line that bisects the 120-degree angle and heads away from it. You elevate this second rhombus of tissue, your flap. You transpose it over the normal triangle of tissue until it fills the original wound. Now, this movement changes the angle of the original tissue, but also advances the surrounding tissue such that the original wound and the site of the flap can then close primarily with a bit of undermining. Again, a standing cutaneous deformity usually arises at a pivot point where you first bisected that 120 degree angle to start drawing the second rhombus. That's the point of maximum tension. Now, whenever you transpose tissue, it does shorten a little bit. Just think of the length getting taken up in the angle shift. If you transpose a flap over 45 degrees, it'll shorten by about 5%. At 90 degrees, it'll shorten about 15%. And if you try and transpose it 180 degrees, not only will you get a really obvious and probably unsightly standing cutaneous deformity, but you'll also lose about 40% of the flap's length. Just something to keep in mind. A note flap is another variant of a rhombic flap adjacent tissues elevated and transposed to close defect. A bilobe flap is another example, only in this case you have two areas of tissue transposition, one filling in the wound, one filling in the defect left by the first. If the angle of rotation or tension from a unilobe transition is too great, then a bilobe is an excellent option that lessens the angle of rotation on each part of the transposition and thus also lessens the tension. The bilobe flaps are great for reconstructions on the nasal tip or sidewall, but they can also be useful for larger defects of the cheek. Now, a Z-plasty is also essentially a transposition flap. You just don't often start out with an open wound. Rather, you elevate two opposing flaps, the Z, then transpose them over each other so that each fills in the location that the other just vacated. Now, the reason to do this is to reorient scars that run against relaxed skin tension lines or to lengthen tissue in a certain direction. So Z-plasties that start with angles of 30 degrees will reorient the central segment by 30 degrees and lengthen it by about 25%. 
Angles of 45 will reorient the central segment by 60 degrees, lengthen it by about 50%, and angles of 60 will reorient by about 90 degrees and lengthen by about 75%. Now, the furlough technique of palatoplasty is a double opposing Z-plasty, one on the nasal and one on the oral surface of the palate. The reorientation, in this case, reorients the abnormal muscle attachments from the bony palate into a sling across the soft palate, but it also lengthens the soft palate and thus improves velopharyngeal closure. And how about some more complex flaps, like an interpolated flap or even an axial flap, which I know is a technically a regional flap? Well, again, interpolated flaps are really just advancement flaps, only the advanced tissue is stretched across a band of completely normal, unviolated tissue, at least at first. A great example here is the Hughes tarsoconjunctival flap for lower eyelid reconstruction. So say you have a full thickness defect in the lower eyelid that includes the tarsus and is too large or otherwise unsuited to primary closure or rotational advancement. Well, luckily, the tarsal plate in the upper eyelid is often 8 to 10 millimeters tall, whereas the tarsal plate in the lower eyelid is only about 4 millimeters, which means you can borrow upper eyelid tarsal plate to remake the lower eyelid tarsal plate without fully disrupting the upper plate to begin with. So, you cut out a superiorly based rectangle, including conjunctiva and four millimeters of the superior aspect of the upper eyelid tarsal plate. You pull that flap down over the normal conjunctiva and lower part of the upper eyelid tarsal plate, and you sew it into place in the lower eyelid defect, thus restoring a lower eyelid tarsal plate. You can cover this with a skin graft or let it be for a few weeks, You don't want to completely excise it right away because the skin graft needs a vascularized bed of tissue or won't survive. Plus, the flap itself wouldn't survive without its own nutritional supply, at least until angiogenesis from surrounding lower eyelid tissue has taken place. So you leave it attached initially, then come back a few weeks later to separate the pedicle, complete the inset, and voila, new lower eyelid. Now, interpolated flaps are also frequently used for alar defects. A nasolabial flap is advanced over normal tissue at the alar base to fill in the defect. Then the pedicle is separated a few weeks later. That's an interpolated flap. But again, it's really just another fancy advancement flap. Now, there are some other designs and names of local flaps that I haven't mentioned here, but they all boil down to the fundamentals of tissue advancement and transposition. So if you understand those, then you're golden. And finally, briefly, you'd asked about axial flaps. Well, the flaps that we've just discussed uh, are all based on a random blood supply, but typically you can lift more tissue with an axial blood supply because it'll be more likely to survive if it's based on a robust named blood vessel. A paramedian forehead flap is a classic axial interpolated flap based on the supratrochlear vessels. And because it's inherently dependent on its pedicle, It either has to remain attached indefinitely or, more commonly, requires a second procedure three or more weeks after flap transposition to separate the pedicle and complete the inset. An abbe flap or lip switch is another classic example. In this case, a wedge of lip is reflected, still attached at the labial artery to fill in a defect of the opposite lip, 
This one, like the paramedian forehead, is a little awkward as the patient walks around with part of their mouth sewn closed for a few weeks before you then come back and separate the pedicle and restore the full oral opening. And there are many more examples, facial artery, myomucosal flap, temporalis flap, temporal parietal fascia flap, buccal artery flap, inferior turbinate flap. In a sense, they're just small types of regional flaps, and often they're billed and coded in the same way. What are the main complications you're trying to avoid with these procedures, and how do you typically reduce the risk of these occurring? Starting with skin grafts, you want to avoid incomplete take of the graft, including complete failure if there's shearing. Remember, the graft relies entirely on nutrition from the wound bed for survival, so anything that separates the graft from that nutritional source risks partial or complete flap failure. If there's a hematoma, a seroma, they can lift the graft and separate it from its blood supply. To mitigate that risk, many surgeons will pie crust a graft at the time of inset, meaning they'll purposefully cut a few small slits or holes into the graft to allow egress of fluid, prevent fluid accumulation, and thus prevent graft failure. Also, it's common to apply a bolster on top of a skin graft, say a ball of Vaseline-soaked gauze sewn in place over the site to add gentle pressure and hold the graft in place. Now, patients can also inadvertently cause graft movement and failure, especially in the case of reconstructing a radial forearm harvest If the patient uses the donor hand and arm too soon, even for such small movements as typing, it can cause movement of the tendons beneath the graft with subsequent shearing, movement of the graft, and then failure. That's why it's common to place the arm, the leg, whatever site is being reconstructed in an immobilizing cast for a week or two after skin graft placement. It prevents movement that may dislodge the graft. Now next, moving on to tissue expanders, you're constantly exerting increasing amounts of pressure on tissue. And recall, you had to make an incision to place that expander in the first place. So one of the risks is wound dehiscence. Now, to avoid dehiscence, incisions are placed as far away from the expander site as feasible, although ideally in a location that may be incorporated into incisions used for the final closure. Now, even if you get minor dehiscence, you can still in some cases proceed with expansion. You also want to be aware of infection with tissue expanders. They are, after all, foreign bodies. So if you get an infection, it can be really impossible to get rid of without explantation. Also, related to increasing pressure, you can sometimes overdo things and get pressure necrosis of tissue, bone resorption, hair loss in the area that's being expanded. That's why it's important to just inflate a little more each time. And if you notice any of these things, then removing some fluid and going more slowly may be necessary. Last, partial or total failure of a local flap is typically a matter of poor perfusion, either from poor design of the flap making it too large and too small a pedicle, too much tension at the inset, and so on. Partial distal tip necrosis is the most common situation. It's unlikely to lose an entire local flap, and the necrosis doesn't happen immediately. Usually, the tissue will blanch, will lose capillary refill, or may become swollen and echomotic before then progressing to tissue necrosis over the course of a couple weeks. Now, if areas of poor nutrition are identified early, they can sometimes be salvaged. So nitro paste, for example, can be applied to some areas so long as it's tolerated by the patient's blood pressure to encourage vessel dilation. 
Also, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, if initiated soon after flap transfer, can generally encourage improved oxygen circulation and help flap survival. Maintaining a clean flap, avoiding trauma to the area, perhaps using antibacterial ointment can help prevent infection, which is another cause of flap failure. Now, if you get some distiltive necrosis, the good part is that often the area can undergo a minor debridement and primary closure because the area of tip necrosis is generally much smaller than the original wound to be reconstructed, so can itself more easily be addressed. And we kind of alluded to this when discussing workup, but what are both patient and surgeon factors that can make such complications more likely? This goes back to a thorough preoperative evaluation. So malnutrition, vasculopathies, immunodeficiencies, certain medications, and smoking can all affect wound healing. Now, some of these can be corrected or optimized before surgery, not all of them. During surgery, you can avoid subsequent flap problems by removing all of the cancer that's there, moving in vascularized tissue if you're in a radiated tissue bed, minimizing tension across the wound, maintaining sterile technique, and so on. After surgery, you can make sure patients know what to do and kind of more importantly, what not to do so that they don't accidentally damage their own reconstruction. In terms of outcomes and expectations, something we're particularly interested in in facial plastics is what defines a quote-unquote good outcome. For soft tissue defects, what defines a good outcome? A good outcome is different for each patient and each wound, but in general, a good outcome achieves three things. The first is closure of the wound in question, or lengthening of the scar in question, reorientation of the scar in question, whatever the initial problem was. Number two, restoring function and avoiding compromising function at the donor site. And three, achieving an aesthetically acceptable appearance. The third goal is the most variable, and what is acceptable will vary from patient to patient. For folks who are particularly distressed by scars, always remember the many adjuncts that exist to simply improve a scar's appearance. There are lasers, chemical peels, dermabrasion, topicals, and injectables, and more, enough to make an entire other lecture, but they really can make significant improvement in scars for those patients who are interested. And finally, how do you usually schedule follow-up for these patients, and for how long should we be following them postoperatively? Follow-up is another thing that will vary with each patient and every reconstruction. Broadly, though, seeing patients a week or so after any reconstruction is good, both to check on how the wound is progressing, remove sutures as necessary. Another check at the one-month point can give a good idea of what the final result will be and if any touch-ups will be needed. Of course, the final result won't actually be there until the one-year mark or beyond because, as we mentioned earlier, that's how long scars are still contracting and healing. For your own follow-up, personal assessment and, and knowledge, I think it's great to try and see patients six months and one year after reconstruction, even if they're doing great. It's a chance to discuss some of the scar revision options that we just talked about and it's also a chance to take photos and maintain your own record of your outcomes so that you know how you're doing. All right. Thanks so much for that really wonderful review. Uh, before we move on to the summary section, is there anything else you wanted to add? I just say, as with all reconstructions, always have a backup plan. 
if something goes wrong, that way you never have to tell a patient who asks you, what do we do next? I don't know, because that's not a great situation. You'll always have a backup plan. All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Vincent. Thank you. Moving on to the summary section. In this episode, we discussed skin grafts and local flaps. The decision to use a local flap can be based on a number of defect factors, including size, depth, location on the body, and types of tissues missing. These tissue rearrangements generally rely on random blood flow from the subdermal plexus, which limits the size of the flap, particularly the length. Because of this, it's particularly important during workup to assess a patient for factors that can impair wound healing and uh, flap success, including tobacco or nicotine use, protein or electrolyte deficiencies, including malabsorptive disorders or malnutrition, collagen vascular diseases, vasculopathies, hypothyroidism, diabetes, hypertension, and immunodeficiency. Steroid use, increased bleeding risk from blood thinner, vitamin use, and chelate history should also be elicited. When planning a reconstruction, we should take into account relaxed skin tension lines and minimizing tension on the final reconstruction, as well as facial subunits, with the classic teaching being to remove the entirety of a subunit if more than 50% is missing. We should also consider estimated wound contraction over time uh, to prevent gradual deformity or functional or aesthetic uh, undesirable results. In terms of reconstructive options, skin grafts are usually broken down into split thickness, full thickness, and composite grafts, and are often chosen based on size, depth, and location of wound, function of the surrounding tissue, and desired aesthetic result. Tissue expanders can also be used with enough preparation time to grow enough skin for either a graft or a regional flap. Local flaps can be categorized as tissue advancement flaps, including V to Y and O to H flaps, rotational flaps like O to Z or O to T flaps, and transpositional flaps such as Z-plasty, rhombic flaps, and bilobe flaps, as well as interpolated flaps like tarsoconjunctival or nasolabial flaps. We also discussed axial flaps a little bit, which are technically regional flaps but are sometimes lumped into the local flap category, even though they have a blood supply from a named vessel like paramedian forehead flap, temporalis flaps, or inferior turbinate flaps. While normal postoperative complications like bleeding and infection should be considered, careful attention should be paid to graft or flap failure from poor vascularization or from mechanical shearing forces. Poor vascular supply can be improved with therapies such as nitropaste and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Tissue expanders can have a number of additional associated complications, including wound breakdown, implant infection, skin erosion, alopecia, or even bone resorption. And need to be inflated more slowly or even removed if these occur. Because soft tissue wounds take at least six months to a year to fully mature, patients are usually followed for at least this amount of time to assure a desirable functional and aesthetic result. And now, we'll finish up as always with some review questions. Like always, I'll ask the question, wait a moment for you to think of the answer or pause the podcast, and then say the answer. Starting off, describe the reconstructive ladder. The reconstructive ladder is used to describe reconstructive options from least invasive to most invasive and progresses as follows. Secondary intention, then primary intention, grafts, local flaps, and tissue expansion, then regional flaps, and finally free flaps. Some add a new rung at the top for composite heteroplastic grafts such as facial transplantation. It should be noted that, like many things in medicine, the reconstructive ladder provides a framework for reconstructive planning, 
rather than an absolute roadmap for how to treat a particular patient. Next, describe the phases of wound healing. The phases of wound healing are generally described in four phases. The first is hemostasis during the first few hours after injury. The second is inflammation, encompassing the first four days after injury, and during which time neutrophils and fibroblasts influx into the wound. Third is the proliferative phase from about four days to about two weeks after injury, when tissue reepithelializes and begins neovascularization, deposits type 3 collagen, and begins to contract via myofibroblast action. The fourth stage is maturation, occurring from about two weeks to six to 12 months after injury, and involves conversion of disorganized type 3 collagen to organized type 1 collagen. Notably, hemostasis and inflammation are often lumped together as a single phase. A couple of numbers-based questions are next. What are some landmarks for wound tensile strength as a wound heals over time? Wounds are typically expected to achieve about 15% of their original strength by three weeks, 60% by six weeks, and 80% at six months, which is expected as the asymptotic maximum for a wound's final strength. These numbers often vary a little bit depending on which textbook you're reading. We expect a flap length to change depending on how much it's rotated. How much would you expect a transposed flap to shorten based on rotation? We expect about 5% shortening for a flap transposed over 45 degrees, 15% shortening at 90 degrees, and 40% shortening at 180 degrees. Though remember, that would likely lead to a standing cone deformity. And how much would you expect a Z-plasty scar to lengthen based on rotation? A Z-plasty scar of 30 degrees will reorient the central segment uh, by 30 degrees and lengthen it by about 25%. Angles of 45 degrees will reorient the central segment by 60 degrees and lengthen it by about 50%. And a Z-plasty with angles of 60 degrees will reorient by 90 degrees and lengthen by 75%. And finally, describe the histologic changes induced with tissue expanders. Pressure exerted by tissue expanders causes the dermis, subcutaneous tissues, and underlying muscle to thin, but the overlying epidermis will thicken. Additionally, interstitial fluid redistributes and collagen and elastin fibers reorient, accounting for the mechanical creep of the soft tissue and leading to skin lengthening. Fibrous capsules often also formed around the expander. And finally, excessive pressure can cause follicular destruction and underlying bone resorption. All right, well, that concludes this episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.